Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to The Rest is Politics Leading with me, Alistair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And we're delighted today to be joined by Hamza Youssef, First Minister of Scotland. There are a fair few firsts to apply to... Hamza, first Muslim politician to lead a Western democracy, Scotland's first non-white leader and its youngest, yet to hit 40, which makes Rory feel a bit old, let alone me. His first active campaign for the SNP, I think I'm right, was in 2007 when he was still a student and then into Parliament in 2011, minister age 27 had several ministerial jobs and now First Minister, as I say, yet to hit 40. And all the time that you've been an MP, the SNP has been in power. You've served that government in various positions, as I say, now First Minister, but I guess the question we all want to explore is how long the SNP can keep this dominant hegemony in Scotland. We've had the Feuds and scandals surrounding your two predecessors, Alex Hammond and Nicola Sturgeon. I think possibly delivery on public services coming more into the into the fray. And, you know, a sense that the dial on independence may be a little bit stuck. So the SNP brand is maybe not what it was. You had a pretty difficult divisive leadership contest, which you won. So you've got a lot on your plate, though. Well, a nice, easy introduction lovely, into the lovely. podcast, which I like. Yep. <laughs> and just to add to it all, uh, on the personal front, you had this rather worrying, terrifying situation at the start of the Israel-Gaza conflict when your in-laws were, were caught up in all that. So a lot to be going on with, a lot to talk about, but Welcome. I was feeling relatively calm before I came in. I know you've just reminded me of all the worries and stresses that I have uh, to deal well, with. Thank you. Can, I, can I start with worries and stresses? When you, you're one of the few politicians who's said that you've, you've had active mental health support and counselling. And you said that if and when you became First Minister, you'd carry on with that. So I just wondered whether you have and what it gives you. I haven't actually, and that's to my, my detriment. Um, and, and I absolutely should check in because it is important. And uh, I learned the lesson far too late. I remember it well. I remember the day that I knew I needed help. And, uh, you know, I was transport minister. My, my marriage, first marriage had broken down. You know, a really tough time I was having. I remember it was in the middle of difficult weather. Transport minister is always a difficult job. And, uh, yeah, I didn't really feel I had anybody to turn to. And uh, I remember actually just a whole day passing and I didn't, I literally did not move from the right hand side of my city for a whole 24 hours. I didn't move, didn't get up to drink water, didn't go to the toilet, didn't eat anything. And I remember just almost being in a, a state of breakdown and crying and upset and, and not really understanding what I was upset at. Um, but then at that point, 24 hours later, knowing I needed, I needed help. And actually the first person I saw wasn't actually somebody to help with counselling. It was you know, a friend who was a psychiatrist and I called him and uh, you know, he said, look, I think instead of talking to me, you need to go talk to somebody who can really talk through the issues that you're dealing with. And you know, I never never spoke to, to Nicola about it, um, never spoke to any of my colleagues about it. Did you feel there was still a stigma that meant that you as a serving politician 100%. seeking help was a, was a problem? 100%. I actually thought if, I, if, if they know about it, I'll, I'll not be in a job. And I, I don't think that would be the case. I think Nicola would have been perfectly understanding, uh, as would my government colleagues, you know, John Spinney, who have always been close to. I think these people would have been very understanding. But it was just you didn't hear about ministers with mental health challenges. If they had mental health challenges, they left the job. And, and, and I didn't feel like I wanted to necessarily leave uh, at that point. Uh, but uh, yeah, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody actually. And family nobody actually knew about it and even I was really nervous and it was my friend who said look I know somebody you know they are very trustworthy confidence you know you shouldn't worry about that um, and and like just you, you need to take some time uh, out and it was the best thing I ever did best thing but you know actually you're, you've given me a really good reminder I should absolutely be shaking in why, why, do, why do you think it'd be good to do it now so I think um, you don't go into the job of First Minister without realising every single day is going to be stressful, as your info, intro <laughs> rightly reminded me. Every day is full of its stresses and, and, and strains and difficulties. Very different when you're a, a Minister, Cabinet Secretary, because there will be times when there's strain, strains and stresses. Um, and, and, and Health Secretary, 
know, almost feels like it is every single day. But as First Minister, you've got the overview. Everything rests with you. And it's not just First Minister, it's leader of the party uh, as well. Um, and then there's the strains and stresses of everyday personal life, um, which, you've, which you've gone and, and you've, you've talked about some of that uh, already. So I think, um, I think it is really a good thing to do before you hit crisis point. So how do you remain a, a sort of normal, private human being? One of the things I felt, I guess I entered politics about the same time as you, is that the risk of politics is that you lose your private self. You become a kind of public figure. And you're almost a public figure even when you're at home. You're so used to being on the defensive, to spinning, to presenting, that you lose the kind of vulnerability and nuance of, of being a human. How, how do you guard against that? Look, I think, first of all, you have to accept that you do not have a private life. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't put it any simpler than that. And I remember, actually, I spoke to Kier about this uh, recently. We, we crossed paths at COP28 and I was just having a brief chance. I said, look, let's have a proper sit down. And you know, I've written to him and not quite had, not had a response yet. I'm, I'm sure it's just lost in the mail, but it's, uh, it's coming soon. <laughs> we'll, we'll come up to your strategy for later. <laughs> but, 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 but genuinely, we're saying to him, because he was talking about his kids and keeping his kids out and, 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 and the advice that I would give uh, Kier is, is draw your boundaries uh, really early on, really early on. So I didn't do that. As I mentioned, failed marriage over it. Even my relationship with my parents and sisters and siblings just became more difficult during that period when I didn't draw boundaries. You know, remarried, got kids, uh, and, and, and I'm really strict with my boundaries. And what does, what does drawing boundaries mean? Get, so I'll, I'll give you an example. On, on, on Monday, 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock, my team, my private office know, unless there is an absolute emergency that nobody else can deal with, don't call me. Because on a Monday, 7 to 8 o'clock, I'm going to give my kid a bath. I'm going to try to put her to bed. And that's important for me. And yep, you know what? I'll work on the weekend. I'll usually be campaigning out on the Saturday. I'll do my box uh, during a Sunday. But I'll tell them, you know, I'll do my box at 5 p.m., on a Sunday till till eight or whatever I need to do, I'm going to try to use Sunday to make sure I take my kid to soft play. And don't get me wrong, my, my security uh, <laughs> who are wonderful and brilliant. When I first told them, look, I'm going to keep taking my kids to the park and to soft play and to the trampoline park, and they, they raised an eyebrow too, but they've been fantastic and uh, been 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 brilliant. So I make sure, supposed to answer your question, that I get as much family time as I can and protect the family time as much as I can. But you can never truly be have a private life. I mean, and, and, and France, it's impossible. I mean, I guess if you're working the hours that you're working, you will be much busier than many of the people that you grew up with and were your friends at school and university. And they will be living very, very different lives with very different rhythms. How do you, how do you continue to create space? Do, do they feel that you've grown away from them? People who were close no. to you when you were 15, 16? You know, I'm so lucky that the friends, so the friends I've got, the kind of group of six that I've got are, are ones that I grew up with. And we've known each other for some of us over 30 years. And I don't see them nearly as often as I'd like, but you know, I saw them over the Christmas holidays, for example, made a, made a point of going to one of the houses for dinner and, and so on. And randomly playing ping pong till two in the morning, which was strange. Do they all share your politics? Oh, no, no, no. Some of them do. Some of them uh, didn't, uh, don't, didn't vote for independence, wouldn't vote for independence, despite me trying to persuade them for 20 odd years. No, no, where we come from, you know, I think most of them probably now do right enough, but one or, one or two of them uh, still need still need uh, converted. But they're just um, you know, still to be worked on. But why I, I like hanging around with them is because when I hang around with them, I'm not, I'm not First Minister, I'm just Tumza. And, you know, they'll rip me to shreds. And Just tell us a little bit about your family background, about you're born in Glasgow, but Pakistani parents. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just tell us a little bit about their lives and how they came to Scotland. I mean, fairly typical kind of immigrant story. My mum uh, was born in Kenya, so one of the Asians who moved to, to East Africa and uh, came here when she was kind of seven, eight years old. The father was a bit older. He came from Pakistan. And interestingly, they went to the same school in the south side of Glasgow, Bell Houston uh, High School, and, and didn't know each other then, but ended up getting married later uh, in life. And dad had a tough upbringing, actually. Dad had a really tough upbringing. Um, his mother died when he was 15, 16 uh, from cancer. And unfortunately, uh, you know, his father was, was was not great with him after the death. And, and basically, they had to move out of the house with uh, their siblings, who, who many of them younger than him. You know, age, he was 18 and the rest of them much younger than that. And he had to basically bring up his little brothers and sisters. So it was a bit of a tough upbringing for him. Do you ever, I mean, you're part actually of a generation of very, very impressive British Muslim politicians, Pakistani backgrounds. So Sajid Javid, uh, the mayor of London, your great Labour opponent in Scotland. Um, are you friends? Do you ever talk about that experience? Is that identity interesting to you or is it something that, that isn't very, I mean, it, it's well, hugely interesting. I mean, I take great pride in it. I also really challenge, you know, I think people who 
tell me that multiculturalism has failed, particularly actually people of colour and the Conservatives who often say to me multiculturalism has failed. Well, wait a minute, you've got a Hindu British Prime Minister, as you've said, Mayor of London uh, from the subcontinent background, myself in First Minister's position. And and, and as you mentioned, Anas, uh, and, and, and if I think about before Anas, of course, uh, his father was a great inspiration to me, actually, Mohammed Sawar. I remember, I remember, you know, an event where Mohammed Sawar had just got elected in 1997 and we had this Pakistan Welfare Trust dinner. Happens every year. 600 people in the Inchinan Hotel, uh, Erskine Hotel in Inchinan. And I remember Mohammed Sawar walked in, you know, says, a couple of months after he got elected, you know, election would have been in May, then it would have been the end of June, July, and people were standing on the tables cheering as though a rock star had come in. <laughs> and even my dad, who was SNP to the absolute core, dad being SNP in 1970-74, I think he joined uh, the SNP, you know, clapping away and cheering. And I think it's great, and I think you know, there is, there is a, a, a common bond, and Sadiq Khan I've, I've known for a, a long, long time, and uh, I think my officials found it really strange. First time I met Sadiq Khan as first minister, a group of officials with me and you know we come into these meetings usually and there's a handshake and we sit down and it came big bear hug <laughs> and and actually I just asked officials to give us five minutes so we could just catch up about family and so on before we before we got into the, the hard politics uh, I think there's a common bond there I think I, I find it really upsetting those who suggest that somehow multiculturalism has failed when actually the evidence is, is far from it You all come from very different backgrounds but all of you I guess come from quite difficult backgrounds I mean, the, in the sense that you're all the group of four that you've mentioned are, I guess, second generation, grew up in quite tough conditions economically initially. It's it's a story partly of ethnicity and religion. It's also a story of class. It's a story to an extent. of... You, you, you and Anna both went to the same... Yeah, we went to private posh, school. Private school. I, mean, I, yeah, I had middle class upbringing and, 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 and background. So, 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 I, I think so, it's so posher in a way that, than Sajid Javid or Sadiq Khan. Yeah, but I, I don't know too much about uh, all the backgrounds. But yes, I mean, I'm middle class... Background and to pretend otherwise would be would be foolish, but the thing that bonds us and the thing we can never ever get away from, even as first minister or mayor of London, or or Sajid or Anas in their positions, is we. I'm afraid will always in this country be seen by some people through our skin color first or religion first, and that's been my experience. I can remember the first time I ever felt racism or endured racism. Primary three, you know, seven eight years old. I remember my mum, who's been a massive influence on in me, you know, in tears coming home because she had to explain to us that they were about to take an estate agent to court because the estate agent denied them the viewing of a house you, because of their personal and dad. Yeah, mum and dad were wanting to move to leafy suburbs, mm -hmm. Newton Mearns, south side of Glasgow. And it's a famous case. It's, it's there in, 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 in the public domain. They tried to view a house for... And I kept getting told by the stage and the, the homeowners on holiday and got an operation, they can't see you. And my dad, my mum just had it in her gut and people of colour have this, we've endured racism for so long that we just know in our gut something ain't quite right. And my dad then got his white receptionist, Scottish receptionist to phone up. She got an appointment like that the next day. Mum said, nah, that ain't right. And she decided to take him to court. And one. And, and was that true also that you had a challenge around one of your children getting into a school and that yeah, nursery? Yeah, exactly that as well. And again, it was a gut. This isn't right, and 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 didn't feel right. So regardless of what position I ever get to in life or any any other person of colour gets to in life, I'm afraid that the common bond we'll always have, uh, whether you're Labour, SNP, Conservative, the common bond is we kind of all get it because mm. we've all endured it. We've all suffered. Just tell us what, what happened because the nursery case. You, you dropped in the end, didn't you? Yeah, I think you're just not wanting to have to go through the rigmarole of a long, drawn-out court case. Um, you know, our vindication came when the care inspectorate uh, looked at the case and said that they upheld uh, our, our, our complaint. So they didn't want you there because of the colour of your skin? Well, I believe it was because of probably the religion of, of right. my daughter as opposed to the colour of the skin. Okay. Um, just on the religion, how, how deep is your Muslim faith? It's part of who I am, absolutely. You know, I'll, I'm, I don't always pray five times uh, a day, but I'll fast during Ramadan. I'll, prayer to me is important. My faith helps to keep me keeps me grounded. Um, I was uh, at Burns night last night and uh, my glass was only full of iron brew as opposed to, to anything stronger. So, no, it's a, it's a hugely important part, not just the rituals, actually. For me, I get a lot of solace um, out of the, the spiritual contemplation um, of, my, of, of my faith. One of the things that I've noticed recently, particularly since October the 7th, is an increase in people making stereotypical comments about, about Muslims. I mean, I, I just did a 
interview with an American podcast, a guy called Sam Harris, who was hammering me for nearly an hour saying, yes, but surely, Rory, you have to admit there's a connection between Muslims and suicide bombers and Muslims and terrorists. He just wouldn't let it go. And I wondered, is that something that you've experienced? And is it something that's getting better, getting worse? How does our society deal with it? I think it's it's getting worse. Well, maybe it comes in, in cycles. But I, look, I remember, for me, 9-11 was such a seminal moment for me, and that might sound a bit kind of selfish, given you know, thousands of miles away and affected uh, and killed uh, so many thousands of Americans. But for me, it was a day I'll always remember. When 9-11 took place on a Tuesday, I think, and coming back from school and the school bus home, you know, the radio was on, and you can kind of hear what was going on, and the driver was telling us to shout because he was trying to listen to, to what was going on. Went home and saw all the scenes as you guys would have seen in the terrible, tragic terror attack that took place. And then the next day, I remember going to school and sitting in form class. And you know, the same two guys I used to sit beside every single morning, and we would talk about the things that teenage boys talk about. Mainly, in my case, Celtic, you know, football club I loved. And they were bombarding me, not with any maliciousness, just bombarding me with questions I had no idea the answer to. You know, why do Muslims hate America? Do you know who was behind it? What was it all about? I'm sitting there going, I don't have a clue. Right, and then, and then of course all the Islamophobia that followed post 9-11 but I have to say my position as First Minister and even perhaps before then there is definitely uh, still a deep-rooted uh, systemic and endemic Islamophobia in this country and, and Scotland is absolutely not immune to that at all so you know some of the questioning I'll get on certain issues it will be seen through a lens because I'm, I'm a Muslim and sometimes I'll I'll do my best to to try to counter that. I think even sometimes overcompensate uh, with that. I'll be more wary about. Oh goodness, how will my meeting with the Muslim community be perceived? And you know, I'll I'll, I'll do things to go out of my way to make sure people. You know, I, I'm the only minister I think in the Scottish government that's ever ever attended. And I mean, in the history of the evolution, I, I think I'd be happy to be challenged in this. That's ever attended. You know, a meeting for for action, churches in need. You know, the the, the organisation that stands up for Christian communities around the world. Because I wanted to make sure a message was sent that I stand with Christian communities that are persecuted right across the world, including in Muslim majority countries. So sometimes you can be almost in danger of over overcompensating. I think that's you went to a synagogue pretty quickly after October the seventh. Yeah. yeah, well, I think that was important for me to do, particularly given the personal circumstances that I was enduring. But I wanted our Jewish community, who I've grown up with, I, mean, I mentioned I grew up in. Newton Mearns has the largest Jewish community in, in, in Scotland, still does to this day. You mentioned Hutchie Grammar School. It's got the largest Jewish population of any school in Scotland. So I grew up in amongst that community and, and have an enormous uh, love and affection for that community. And I didn't want them to feel, because of my personal circumstances, that I wasn't feeling their grief because they are grieving and for their loved ones, for their loss, for their country. And uh, I think it was an important signal for me to be there. Mm. I've um, spent a bit of time with both of your predecessors. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I'd like to get your sense of them as people and politicians, mm. very briefly, maybe Salmon in a sentence, Nicholas Durgin in a sentence. But also I asked both of them at different times whether they were comfortable projecting themselves as internationalists mm -hmm. when they have the word national in the title of the party and nationalism at its heart. And I've never quite understood why you don't change the name of the party. It's such a strong brand, I think, is the, is the honest answer. But also, having done lots of international engagement, you know, Minister for External Affairs for a number of years, and obviously First Minister and other ministerial portfolios, nobody's really ever sat me down and, and, and been confused about the fact that we're a centre-left progressive party. I mean, everybody's understood it. Nobody's ever said, oh, by the way, uh, what kind of nationalist are you? But nationalism I've never had a, uh, anybody from a kind of far-right nationalist party attempt to reach out to us because our policies are pretty self-evident. You know, we're pro-migration. You know, our social policies are progressive and to the left. You know, and, and, and now we're led by uh, a Muslim. I mean, there's not really much dubiety about the progressive nature of our party. But I Nationalism has uncomfortable connotations. There's no no getting away from it, but it's never been an issue practically you know, in, you know, in reality. Now you've been so you've been in power for 17 years. There is, I think, a sense of maybe not as there's a real desire to get rid of the Tories across the, the country as a whole, as I think. But I think you are in a kind of slightly different place to where you've been in the last yeah, sure. decade. I'm just wondering whether you you don't you couldn't do with a sort of big like rebrand. Yeah, <laughs> no, I just I just think the SNP brand is so strong and and it's known, it's so recognised. Um, I think to make that kind of change, I mean, the party is going to be what 90, 90 years old. This year. Mm -hmm. Actually, I actually share a birthday with the party, seventh of April. Um, so so it's going to be ninety years old. I think the brand is so strong, and as I say, I don't think there's much confusion about our socially progressive values. Do Do you ever worry? Because I, I I mean. 
I, I felt this a lot during the Brexit referendum, that there's a tendency to imagine that all your problems can be solved if you just get rid of the other. So obviously the Brexit campaign is thought, if we just get rid of Europe, everything's going to be fine. All the problems we have with the NHS and education, I think. And I, I sometimes feel the same coming out of Scotland. We just get rid of England and Wales, it'll all be fine. All our problems come from Westminster. If we can just take control of our own things, we'll sort it out. And I tend to feel in personal life, that's a bit like um, if your life's going badly and you think, well, if I just get rid of my wife or if I just don't see my parents, everything will be fine. And it's sometimes a failure to understand that most of the problems in our lives, whether in Britain or Scotland or personally, are internal and that the best way of fixing them is from within, not to get rid of someone else. So I think, look, it's an interesting analysis analogy. That would be true if the premise of the independence campaign was that with independence, we'll have rivers of milk and honey and manna will fall from the sky. That's not the premise of the independence campaign. The independence campaign recognises and the independence movement recognises that, by the way, you're still going to have problems and challenges. Some of those will be really difficult problems and challenges. Global financial crash. Scotland wouldn't be immune to that. We would still have to face those challenges. The difference with independence is you would have the economic, monetary, fiscal levers in your hands to be able to, to adjust to those shocks. And also that you wouldn't have, and Brexit's a great example, you wouldn't have imposed upon you um, policies that create such a deep-rooted economic self-harm as Brexit did. You wouldn't have them imposed upon you, particularly when your population uh, didn't vote for it. So it's not a, look, by the way, you know, rose-tinted glasses, everything is fine with independence. It's saying, well, look at look, look the UK, for me, again, Brexit's a perfect example. I think there's a conspiracy of silence around Brexit from Westminster politicians. Nobody is talking about it, and we will be and are talking about it. All of the evidence, bar none, shows you what an absolute disaster it has been for the economy. Economy. We are the poor man of Northwest Europe, you know, the poor man of Northwest Europe. And you look at countries, whether it's Norway, whether it's Ireland, whether it's Denmark, Austria, and you look at the, their levels of productivity higher than ours. You look at their national income per head higher than ours. You look at their levels of inequality lower than ours. So don't you think my uh, word for it at all? Resolu Resolution Foundation, well-respected think tank. You know, typical household in the UK, £8,300 better off if we had the same levels or similar levels of productivity and, and similar levels of inequality. So no, look, uh, the premise of the independence campaign is not vote for independence and by the way, you know, everything will be fine, everything will be okay. It's let's actually make the decisions for ourselves. I am going to come back to Alex and Nicola and your assessment of that. But just sticking on Brexit for a while, so I sort of feel that it kind of helped your campaign in terms of the, the sort of emotional level of it. But I think it's thrown up real practical problems, which I don't feel you've in the last decade begun to address. So if you go back to all the big questions that I felt weren't answered in the independence campaign in 2014 about currency, about military, about border, about trade, and so forth, you've had a decade, but I don't feel we're really any closer to understanding those. And I think that's why you your independence campaign feels a little bit stuck. Mm, I look, I would disagree because we've spent a fair period of time, particularly since I've been First Minister, publishing a whole series of papers. Now, I'm not expecting the mass populace to read, uh, you know, 50 pages of uh, what would happen if we end up in a uh, member of European Union, what would happen with our borders, custom checks, currency, pensions. But we've had what people do know in relation to Brexit is that those issues, border and currency have and trade, have become much, much more difficult, so how, much more complicated. Yes, but how you deal with them, and, and we've got papers on, on many of these issues, some of them are still to come, for example, more further papers on pensions and so on, is that we are upfront and honest about it. So our paper on the EU doesn't pretend that there's not going to have to be some kind of light touch customs checks for some goods coming across the border between England and Scotland. The prize, of course, we say is that Scotland would then be part of a single market that's seven times the size of the UK. And by the way, we'd have a department within the Scottish government that effectively would do the initial can paperwork I, for I just, you, can I, can I just deal with the light touch customs The, 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 the awful thing is when so we so hear forth. the phrase, light touch customs checks and all the alarm bells ring because that's especially what, today where well, 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 the well, 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 said as well there'll be some light touch customs checks let's, let's, be, up, let, let's be upfront about it and, and, and honest about it let's not pretend that uh, and I think people rather appreciate the honesty and that's why the paper goes into the detail and says the prize is a market seven times the size of the UK tariff free are you not uh, pretending and saying that you can get straight back into it we're not saying we can get straight back into it. We're saying, if, again, if you read the paper, which I'm going to send you after this, which says there's an application process and Scotland would have to apply to be a yeah, member of the European Union. You just talked about this seven times bigger market as if that was a kind of... Yeah, this is what I mean, is that it's like... There's, there's a touch of the Farage about this in saying, this How is what's going to happen. you? Uh, <laughs> you're basically saying, you're giving us the end point in terms of your communication without actually 
fair enough you're admitting there are problems, but it seems to me that can people I, have can, a better can, sense can, of what can the I problems reinforce are. That the other reason it feels like the Brexit campaign is that they also were saying, don't worry, we're going to leave Europe and we're going to connect to the much bigger growing markets of India, China, the United States, which are much faster growing. And what they failed to take into account is that more than half Britain's trade was with Europe. And again, in your vision, there's a lovely vision of this wonderful future with a seven times bigger market, but it's failing to take into account that these light touch customs checks are affecting by far your biggest trading partner. Look, again, by value uh, of, of, of goods, actually, are, are do more trade with uh, the rest and, of... Goods and services, you are massive. Services are, of well, course. Well, uh, a service economy, uh, so goods are almost irrelevant. That, again, is a Brexiteer problem. No, we look, are a service-driven economy. Uh, absolutely. Services, of course, uh, are important. Uh, the point is that we're not going into the European Union, and again, I accept there's got to be an application process. We're not going into the European Union completely cold. We have been, of course, a member of the European Union for many, many decades. Now, I accept there's got to be an application process. Do I think that application process, and would Europe look to speed that up? Would we be able to speed up? I would certainly hope so, given we've you know, been able to align with the Acquis Communitaire for many, many decades across many chapters. Now, that's got to be a conversation that's got to take place with the European Union. But I'm not trying to sell the point that somehow being, everything will be yeah, okay. I'm, I'm being uh, cheeky. I'm, I, I shouldn't keep I, pushing too much. But again, the echo, again, was Liam Fox would always say, don't worry, we're not going into this agreement with Europe from a cold start. We've been part of the European Union for 40 years. It's all going to be much easier than you think. We know what these relationships are. And it turned out, unfortunately, that politics is very difficult. Spain will be very difficult on letting you in. I mean, no, but Spain, Spain, have, Spain have said uh, unequivocally, uh, again, uh, in fairness, a previous administration at a time, but the Conservative minister, Prime Minister at a time said, look, we're not going to look to veto, we wouldn't look to veto Scotland. And of course, the situation in Scotland, uh, we say, is an internal issue here with the UK and the situation in Catalonia is an internal situation for the Spanish government to have to deal with. I'm not saying to you and haven't said throughout the course of this interview, by the way, there aren't going to have to be challenges. We're going to have to work our way through. Ultimately, though, having worked through those challenges, and I believe we absolutely can, the prize is great. The prize is that we get to make decisions for ourselves. But not only that, just look at countries that are similar size to Scotland, Look at Ireland, for example, across uh, the water. Look at your Norways and your Denmarks. And you can see countries similar size to Scotland, similar population to Scotland, and having done incredibly uh, well and continue to do incredibly well and actually have higher productivity, lower inequality, uh, higher average income than the UK. But you do accept that the, the Brexit, the debate in the, within the UK as a whole, whereas and I agree with you, I think most people now consider it to have been a disaster, so that what's happening within the debate in Scotland, I feel, is that you've kind of had independence, which has carried your strategy for a lot of the time that you've been in power. And now there's much greater focus on the, on the domestic stuff and on delivery, where, you know, you have been struggling on education, you have been struggling on health, you have been struggling on some of the issues for which you have direct responsibility. I don't think that's the reason why we're facing challenge. So I think, look, on, on each of these issues, I could point you to, and, you know, kind of happy to... to, and, to and you're of, not just going to blame Westminster, which is the normal way that you explain why things no, go that, wrong. No, look, I dis yeah. also disagree with your, your premise. It's not what we normally do. There's challenges, of course, uh, because uh, Westminster still controls largely the economic levers. The biggest challenge that everybody is facing in the country, whether it's in Scotland, England, Northern Ireland or Wales, is the cost of living crisis. I'm afraid you can try as much as you want, but that is not created by the Scottish government and the cost of living crisis. It lands very much at the door of a concern Conservative Party that has uh, imposed 13 and a half years of austerity and took a torpedo to the economy through the mini budget. So look, I, I accept the point that um, the Scottish government, uh, of course, has responsibility for, for a number of devolved areas. But let me just challenge back. Look, in, in every single policy area, you're going to have some level of challenge, but we can equally point to where we've made significant, significant progress, and whether it's education and reducing the attainment gap, for example. More young people from the poorest and more deprived areas going to university than ever before is pretty good. Our health service, facing challenge for sure, still continues to be not just the best performing in e department, but the only country that hasn't had junior doctor strikes or nurses strikes. I could point to, you know, th every single no, no, area. No, we could, I my, could come my, back with stats galore. No, but my, I suppose my point in raising that was, was so you could, you could challenge back and, and, and forth. I, I am much more comfortable in a policy space and talking in a policy space. And that's why when it comes to general election, yeah, I think it's it's going to be a challenge. It's, we're going to we're going to face our biggest challenge in comparison to general elections over the last decade. Though I have to say, before 
2014, of course, general elections were always a, mm-hmm. a difficult uh, election for the SNP. But for the last decade, this will be this will probably be the most difficult one in the decade. Um, but as much as we can talk about policy, because I think there's a huge policy vacuum at the moment, I don't see much difference between what the Conservatives are proposing, what Labour are proposing. The one one big policy area of difference that Labour have is the Green Prosperity Fund and they seem to be rolling back in that and talk that even by the time this podcast goes out it might well be in the dustbin. Um, so I'm, I'm very comfortable talking about policy. I want it to be in the policy area. My biggest challenge to be frank in the last 10 months has been uh, the fact that there's issues that are out with my control that have undoubtedly dominated and therefore we've not been able to talk about policy as much as I would like. Okay, now you've had this one thrown at you before but I'm going to throw it again. Kate Forbes, you were a transport minister and the trains were never on time when you were just as Secretary of the Police was stretched to breaking point. I've heard this line before, yes. And as Health Minister, we've got record high waiting times. And that was brutal. Mm. Right. And that's from a colleague that you served with. So I think, we, as you say, we can back, we can back backwards and forwards on stats about how many people are on waiting lists and, you know, the ed, going down the educational rankings and so forth. But I guess my point is that, do you not worry that you, you've come at the end of this amazing salmon period, then this extraordinary sturgeon period, and you're like a kind of bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a fag end of this SNP hegemony. <laughs> Been called lots of things before. I think you've called me now Farage <laughs> and uh, and the fag end. So tell um, me, but, and, and before you answer that, I want to pin you down on your assessment of salmon briefly and your assessment of Nicola Sturgeon briefly. Oh, to do all those things briefly. Look, I, look, I think in an election contest. All of us will say things that we regret and we think about how we should have phrased it and not phrased it. And I think that, I mean, you, I'm not sure if Kate does, you could probably ask her the question, but whether she does, I suspect she probably does because in effect, that was the moment I think she lost leadership uh, campaign. And you feel she was trashing the whole government with that? Yeah, and the, look, the party, and I know the party because I've, I've mm. been a son of this party for as long as I can remember. They do not like yellow on yellow fire. Uh, you know, the party just does not like that and, and, and did not appreciate that. So look, but look, Kate, Kate and I, you know, she's... We were messaging last night. Actually, we get along uh, very well. Water under a bridge after a after a leadership contest. Uh, in terms of your your more general question around the kind of uh, natural political cycle and political gravity that we all have to face, look, my job is to try to fight against that, um, and I'm not going to pretend at all that it's going to be easy. I think this general election will be a challenge uh, for uh, the SNP. My intention is to make sure in Scotland we're the largest party and we win that general election, but we're facing a challenge, and I don't think it's because there's a huge enthusiasm to vote for Keir Starmer. I don't think that people really know what it is he stands for or what uh, his policies are. There is just a strong motivation to get rid of that shower down in Westminster. And Scotland, that's a pretty strong motivation for a lot of people. And that's why I think it's important to say, and, and, and I'll say this, look, actually, Keir Starmer is going to be the next PM. There's no, I think anybody can tell me or pretend that, that won't be the case. In Scotland, we've got an opportunity to vote for a party that you believe in, a party that values aligns with yours. And actually, even if you don't agree with all of our policies, when the SNP is well represented in Westminster, we make sure that Scotland's voice is heard. I'll definitely, <laughs> I'm determined to get your allies and Nicola. Okay, sure. But before I do that, before I do that, just on this point about, so this, this sort of new strategy appeared recently when he suddenly said Keir Starmer is definitely going to be the Prime Minister. And it follows all sorts of different twists and turns in your kind of top line messaging about Labour, about the Tories, about the general election. But the fact is, if Scotland stays the same, and I accept you're facing a challenge, but let's just say Scotland stays the same in terms of politics, in the rest of the country, Keir Starmer has to get the bigger swing than Clement Attlee in 1945 and Tony Blair in 1997. So it's not true that if people vote for the SNP in Scotland in the same numbers, that Keir Starmer is definitely going to be Prime Minister. That is a massive swing he has to get. He's, he's going to get a massive swing. This is going to be the collapse of the Conservative Party, potentially even an existential threat. I hope it's an existential threat, uh, given the damage that they've caused this country. They are going to get routed uh, up and down the country. Uh, and they deserve it. This is not a, a, a normal election. In fact, if you go back and look over the decades of how many times Scotland has influenced a general election, uh, you can count it on. We wouldn't even need your one hand to count it on. And that was when we had, by the way, way more seats than we have at the moment. So again, let's not let's not pretend otherwise. Of course, every uh, and every vote does count. This is my point, is that Scotland's votes do count. Now, Scotland could... You Know, end up sending a whole raft of Labour MPs who will do nothing other than stand up for Keir Starmer. Michael Shanks, Rutherglen MPs, a classic example. 
But they'll stand up for Scotland. No, no, he said, well, well, well let's take the, the vote and get the guys a ceasefire. It's a perfect example. Michael Shank said, I'll stand up for Scotland. His leader in Scotland, Anas, supported a ceasefire. What did Michael Shanks do? Didn't vote for a ceasefire because what he did was what Keir Starmer told him to do. And that is what you'll get with Labour MPs or, guess, MP MPs, who, whether you like our policies, sometimes don't like all our policies, agree with some of them, don't agree with all of them, we always bang the drum for Scotland. Stephen Flynn does it every single week. Scotland, Scotland, Scotland. And that's what you get with SNP MPs. You've talked a lot about productivity and said, I think I agree with you, that, that there's no clear vision coming out of the government or the opposition in terms of how they're going to turn this around. What is your vision on how you're going to turn around productivity in Scotland? So I just did a, a, an hour speech on this at Glasgow University on my vision for industrial policy. And a lot of it is centred on the huge potential we've got from the transition to net zero. And uh, just, just remind us, what is productivity in Scotland? How does it rank compared to productivity in England? Where has it been for the so last 17 is, years? So productivity has increased at a faster rate uh, than the rest of the UK in the last uh, decade, but it's still far too low. I mean, you know, It's nowhere near where we need it to be. And for me, the unlocking of that... it increased by a faster amount, it's still tiny. Yeah, still t- it's still yeah. F- yeah, I, I'm accepting that, by the way. I'm not disagreeing with you. It's far too low uh, than, it, than it should be. And I go back to my point, our fiscal monetary levers is largely controlled by the UK. But look, I, I accept also... You, you think that productivity is defined by the fiscal and monetary levers? You think... Look, so, look, it can often be by the fact that we don't have, for example, if I took the, the example of transitioning to net zero, the way we unlock that is largely actually how the United States and Europe are doing it. You know, you need to be able to compete, not with the quantum of the Inflation Reduction Act, the European Green Deal Investment Partnership uh, plan, sorry. Uh, what you're going to have to do is put some sort of subsidy up, like actually the Labour Party seemed to be suggesting and now rolling back on, to unlock that investment. Most of my meetings in London So, so you been, mean you want to put tens of billions of pounds into investing in some green future and you're going to have to borrow it? That's that's absolutely part of it. To, 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 and, to, and you're to frustrated because you can't borrow tens of billions of we pounds. We can't borrow even close to tens of billions of, and, and of you, pounds. you think Britain would be able to suddenly borrow that money in its current financial situation? Uh, yes, I think they should absolutely prioritise that. Remember, of course, politics is about choices. Uh, and then you can make those choices when you're in government. Now, whether you have to borrow, whether you have to look at taxation. In Scotland, we've taken a different route on taxation where those who earn the most like first ministers, pay a little bit more because we need to invest in our public services. Whatever choices you have to make, but, but your you have is, to look at the longer term. Your instinct is if you borrowed more or taxed more, got more money and the government, push that money in the way that Europe or the US has done, you'd be able to get productivity turned around. I don't doubt that would have a significant impact on our economy, including in terms of productivity. I don't doubt it for a minute. I mean, again, the meetings that I've had throughout the entire course of yesterday with, with some of the biggest investors in the world, many of them have a footprint in Scotland already or Black Rocks, you know, JP Morgan's, Morgan Stanley's, Barclays, all big investors globally. And all of them have an interest in investing in Scotland due to the climate uh, renewable potential. Our difficulty, and there's things that the Scottish government absolutely can do, and we have some recommendations from an investor panel, but ultimately the key message that keeps coming back is, well, look, why would we invest in the UK when we're getting subsidy incentives in the United States or in European capitals? I'm curious why Rory's making the face. Yeah, I'm making the face because it doesn't sound to me like productivity. I mean, it sounds to me like these people are saying we can get free money from these other governments. But what I was expecting you to do is much more what you hear from Andy Burnham or Andy Street, which is laying out concrete detailed plans on how to improve productivity in their regions. And I was expecting you to talk much more about skills. I was expecting you to talk much more about specific forms of industrial strategy. This idea that somehow what's holding back productivity is the inability to find tens of billions of pounds, which incidentally, I don't think Britain could borrow. I don't think we're in the financial situation to do that. In the sense, that was the Liz Trust lesson. Yeah. We're not the world's reserve currency. We don't have the freedom to do those things. Look, productivity, of course, undoubtedly is linked to skills. And we just had a skills uh, review, in fact, a number of skills reviews which we're implementing. And actually, again, when I come back to this whole point of my trip to London, for example, the entire reason why we're trying to attract, or, or one of the big incentives to attract investment into Scotland is that ecosystem that exists. So if you look at some of the work that's been done by Sandy Begbie, well-known Scottish uh, financial enterprise, um, it talks about that ecosystem. Scotland's advantage as a small country means that you can bring industry, higher education, further education and government together in order to try to deal with some of these uh, skills issues and grow your own, make sure you've got the right workforce uh, for the industry of the future. What we've also said, 
said, and this is you know something the Scottish government under the SNP I don't think has said before this budget is we're going to have to look at the size of the public sector in Scotland. We're going to have to think about how we begin to 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 make efficiencies and reduce the size and the scale of the public sector. So we've look, I can talk to you in this podcast in detail about what I think we we can do, not just to help productivity, to boost economic growth, because I think economic growth is hugely important for a purpose. And, and that purpose is to reinvest back into our public services and to help us have those targeted measures to reduce poverty, because poverty is still far too endemic uh, right across the UK, including, of course, uh, here in Scotland. So look, I can lay out in huge amounts of detail some of our plans around uh, productivity. If you want to do a, another episode, we can go just on, on our economic plans. But I, I suppose I go back to the point I made to Alistair, which is, look, I'm far more comfortable talking about policy a lot of the difficulty I think my party has faced in the last 10 months is its issues that are not to do with policy that have been distracting us and, and causing us some challenge. Which brings me back. <laughs> <laughs> to that to, question that you're desperate to ask. Well, is, just, you yeah. know, honestly, deep down in your heart, you've grown up with Alex Salmon as this huge figure in the SNP. Yeah. You've then had Nicola Sturgeon, this huge figure in the SNP. I sort of feel with your leadership, every time it looks like you're just about to get your head above the water, you know, whether it's WhatsApp <laughs> messages at COVID, or whether it's the police. Uh, uh. So Alex, in a word or a phrase, and Nicola, just give me your assessment. Yeah, I don't know about, it'd be hard to do it in a word or a phrase. Look, Alex is somebody I uh, looked up to. He was the reason I joined the party. I remember watching his speech, you know, about the Iraq war. And he was, you know, I heard him speaking in the House of Commons. And although my dad was the ASMP, and it was always probably my natural kind of inclination was towards the ASMP, that was the moment I thought, yeah, I want to join uh, that party. And Alex gave me my first job as a as a minister. Not only that, he encouraged me. I mean, he, you mentioned my journey into politics. He, he, you know, we had a, a bid in for question time. We didn't get very often bids into question time. We didn't have many MPs at the time, a handful of MPs, and and obviously with the, the party and government for a few years at that point. And there I was as a young, like twenty six year old, and he said you're going on question time. I said, me? <laughs> I said, yeah, tell Hamza he's going on. You'll be absolutely fine. And, and, you know, it went fine and went well, actually. So he gave me a lot of opportunity over the years. And so actually, I feel, if I'm honest with you, the breakdown in relationship with Alex is, is yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of not just regret, but I, I feel quite hurt uh, about it all and how it's all transpired. Somebody I looked up to now spends a fair bit of his time Trying to damage you. Laying the boot into the SNP. Mm. Yeah, trying to damage me, whether it's personally or or the SNP. And frankly, the cause that we both love, and I do believe Just Alex is... What, why? What, why has he... What What have we learnt about his personality from this transition? Or about politics? Um, I don't... I, again, it would be hard for me to answer for for Alex and, and what his motivations are. It feels difficult to think that it's anything other than to try to replace the SNP, which is, is never going to, to happen. But I don't, I don't know, because Alex, I feel, could have actually played a role as you know, kind of elder statesman, actually given advice, gone off to do whatever he wanted to and do. Does he not feel sort of bitter that people were ungrateful, they didn't give him enough respect, that people sort of turned on him, so there's an element of revenge? Um, there, there may be that. Again, it's hard for me to talk about what Alex's motivation. Do you have any contact with him at all? No, I mean, maybe kind of briefly uh, shook hands and exchanged pleasantries during Winnie Ewing's funeral. Look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go out my way only because, you know, I haven't seen any evidence from either Alex nor the party that he leads that they are interested in anything other than giving the SNP a kicking. And if you believe in independence, giving the largest vehicle that's driving forward independence a kicking every single day and through every single press release doesn't make sense to me. It speaks to me to a very ulterior motive. And Nicola? Nicola, I've just got such a deep affection for, and and always will. You know, she to me is somebody who, first of all, I've always been close to Nicola. And her first uh, election that she ever stood, or one of the first elections she ever stood for, uh, against Mohammed Sawar. Actually, my dad's office in Pollock Shields in, in Glasgow Southside, the basement was her was her election base. So I've known uh, Nicola since I was a, a young kid. So look, I've I'll always had that, that deep affection for Nicola. I worry, I worry about her to an extent as, as well. I mean, she's dealing with a lot, uh, as we know about. And, and, and I find really sad about how, you know, there's certain elements who, who are seeking to try to kind of tarnish her, her reputation when, you know, I think about COVID in particular. I, I worked closely with Nicola throughout the, the years of the pandemic. And I can tell you what, Nobody in the Scottish government is saying we got everything right. You know, far from I'm certain we made mistakes during that really difficult period. But I'll tell you, without any doubt, 
that Nicola and the rest of the government, but particularly Nicola, only ever put the interests of the people that she was serving first to try to protect them from harm. Did you ever, when you were kind of rising up through the party, ever worry that it did seem a bit odd that you had the leader and the chief executive of the party as a married couple, did that was that not a sort of recipe waiting to go wrong? Look, I think in I mean, hindsight, you, you could absolutely reflect on that and say, look, should there should that have been the case? I think nobody really questioned it because we didn't see it. There was no red flags. There was nothing that seemed to cause us any issues, concerns that were raised at the time. And obviously, I can't comment on a live police investigation that will go in the way that it's it's it's, it's going to go and conclude in the way it's going to conclude. But ultimately, you know, the party uh, was doing well, was winning under Peter Nicola, uh, and and no, it's, as I, say, I mean, it's a kind of as a sort of outsider listening. It's a you found yourself in a very unlucky, difficult position. I mean, it's not nice to sit with a thing saying, I can't comment on an ongoing police investigation. I mean, this is not a, it's not the line you would have wanted to be producing. Not. Like, <laughs> of course not. I don't know if that's a question or a statement of the obvious, but yeah, no, of course not. I mean, I, I was first minister for a couple of weeks and I remember you know, being elected and all the, the kind of ceremony and pomp that goes with becoming first minister. And we had a couple of weeks of recess, Easter, Easter recess coming up. And yep, you know, this was the moment you're going to be able to dominate the news coverage. There'll be no parliamentary. You go out, you set out what it is you stand for, who sums the use of, what is he going to try to advocate for? And the second day, Peter gets arrested. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. my life for the that's next... That's what I mean about every time you yeah. up there, something hits yeah, you. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So it has been difficult and it's challenging. But also, I try to remind myself about this every, every day. I never lose sight of the fact that leading your country is the greatest honour of anybody's life and not many people at all get the opportunity and it's it's kind of like being the captain of the football team right I mean it's your home country it's a country you love it's a country you're raising your kids in and and you get to lead it and every single day for all the challenges there's some really good moments Alistair First Minister let's take a quick break You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. To bring you to international affairs and I guess personal things, um, one of the things that you've talked about very movingly was the experience of your wife's family being stuck in Gaza. And I wonder whether we could take you back to that, how that felt, what you learned from that experience, how that's helped you understand international affairs through that lens. I think it was the most difficult few weeks of, of our lives. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget waking up that morning. And uh, seeing the messages from Nadia's mum, and I think once we understood what had happened on the 7th of October, those abhorrent terror attacks that took place and the extent of them, we knew the retribution would be, and the retaliation would be huge. And she was in Gaza City or Khan Yunus? Or? No, she was in Derbala, which is in between Gaza City and, and Khan Yunus. It's, it's kind of centre of, of Gaza. And, and the family had been going, uh, I mean, Nadia had gone every year to Gaza before the blockade. And then post the blockade, they went. They weren't able to get in often, but essentially, my my father-in-law wanted to go see his ninety-two-year-old mother. You know, she she had caught COVID a number of months back, and you know she's pretty frail, and obviously continues to be very, very frail. So he effectively wanted to go see her for for one last time. And uh, the seventh of October happened, and every day for the four weeks that they were trapped in there was unbelievably intense getting messages and calls when we thought they were hit and there was times when they phoned me to say their goodbyes uh, my mother-in-law telling me to take care of her girls um, and what was their experience what did they describe what did they see I mean it's actually very difficult for us to get reporting out of Gaza what, yeah. what, what did they what, what was it like for them so uh, uh, you have to imagine every single day they were saying that there was just a constant buzz of drones a constant every single moment, every single day. So you're always on edge immediately because you don't know if there's going to be a strike or not. And then, of course, you would get strikes. And there's one time they phoned me at... I had just done my conference speech and it was a couple of hours later and my mother-in-law phoned me to say they'd been hit. The house had been hit. 
and she had the smoke everywhere, windows have all been blasted, uh, smashed, doors blasted off the hinges, we've been hit, I don't know who's alive, who's not, and I said, look, mum, just take a breather, just let's try to see, assess the situation. I don't think, you know, hopefully you've not been hit. Now, it transpired they hadn't, but somebody had been hit nearby. And my mother-in-law tells me that she then, after, you know, she phoned back, said, look, everybody's okay, it's not us, but there's an eight-year-old girl from, and they say the house was, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 metres away, eight-year-old girl from that blast landed outside their house and their spine, they say, like, she can't move. She's conscious, but she can't, she can't move. Um, we don't know what to do. And we said, well, call Mohammed, that's my wife's brother. He's a doctor. Is he, is he? He's still there, yeah. He's still there. Mohammed's still there, still working in the hospital uh, where he can, separated from his family, actually, but he's, he's still there. And so, you know, that's the kind of things that they would have to deal with. Day to day, they were living with bottles of dirty, salty water. And, 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 and the really, I mean, it was always difficult, but the real difficulty came when the North was evacuated. So all of the extended cousins and aunties and uncles that were in the North, you know, so in this house where there was usually 10 of them suddenly had 100 people in this house. So I think it, I say it's indescribable. I'm trying to describe what they've told me. And I'll never forget, actually, that so they arrived back on bonfire night they got back to the UK and uh, you know, we obviously picked them up from the airport and went to the house and spent time with them in the evening. And I remember my father-in-law was chatting to a relative as he, as he come at the door and a firework went off and he jumped. It absolutely jumped and I thought this is going to take you some amount of time I think to recover through the trauma of all of this. And how do you feel as a politician on the issue when you've been pretty clear about your position as you say Anasawa was pretty clear on a ceasefire just give a sense of how you feel about the way Joe Biden has handled this the way Rishi Sunak has handled this and the way Keir Starmer has handled this. I think those who have still refused to call for an immediate ceasefire will be seen to be on the wrong side of history on this issue. I, I just can't I can't understand it when you, particularly those that are uh, have a close relationship, either are able to have the ear of the Israeli government or indeed, for example, Qatar, which we know is influential with Hamas. Every single person that is in that trusted position has to be calling for an immediate ceasefire and doing everything they can behind the scenes to stop the violence. I've never seen this level of death and destruction that has killed so many innocent men, women and particularly children. And yet the word ceasefire has somehow become almost a dirty, dirty word. I mean, as a politician, can you understand why Rishi Sunak and Kirstam are not calling for ceasefire? Uh, truthfully, I can't. I can't. I've tried can to think about Biden? it. No, I genuinely if can't Biden's understand. trying to do the influence bit behind the scenes and I, things. Look, I just, I, 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 if he's trying to do it behind the scenes, I've just not seen the material effect of it. Uh, what has been the material effect or impact? I've not seen levels of restraint from the Israeli government. Um, if this, If this is restraint from the Israeli government, then my goodness, I wouldn't like to see what unrestrained looks like. So, you know, some people have made this argument to me in the past that we're doing things behind the scenes. And, and I believe there are conversations going on behind the scenes. I'm afraid there has to come a point where you go, look, they're just not listening to us and we have to begin to exert some public pressure. Uh, and the fact that uh, the UK and, 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 and others are not doing that, I think is a failure of leadership. And as I say, I just don't know how much more worse the situation has to get. And of course, the worry for many of us who are observing this is, look, there, there's the immediate issue. We've got to try to stop the violence, get aid into people who desperately need it, rebuild Gaza. I think the worrying thing is, how do you stop these cycles of violence that you and I have seen throughout the entire course of our lives? And, and I do believe that until you have meaningful steps towards a Palestinian state, then you're never, ever going to see true peace in that region. You've been very generous with your time. I'm thinking about the last couple of times I've seen you. I saw you in uh, UN General Assembly in New York, where you were doing some great stuff around international development and very pleased to see that you were looking at cash support for people in humanitarian emergencies. Very progressive and good leadership. Also saw you at the coronation. Um, and you were dressed up much more fancy than I was. I was well, you were pretty fancy <laughs> dressed. Um, and I was very pleased to see you at the coronation because you sometimes come across a bit of a Republican and I wondered whether you, were, you were softening <laughs> softening in any way towards the monarchy. I, I, I think it'd be hard for him not to be there, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, look, I, my, my views are, are known by everybody, including, I suspect, uh, his, his Majesty, who, by the way, I hold uh, in, in, in great respect. It's, look, I, I have a duty to do. Um, I'm meant to be the First Minister for everybody in Scotland. It would have been outrageous if I had not been at the coronation. I, have a, I take my job 
very seriously, whether it's attending the coronation or, or, or having audiences with the king, who I have to say that when it comes to the big issues of the day, and you've mentioned uh, climate change, has been far ahead of most politicians for a number of years. And he and I, you know, like I won't disclose what we talk about, obviously, in our, our private audiences, but there's a number of issues, uh, you know, I, I can respect him for climate change being one of them. I think when it comes to the issue of community cohesion, which we desperately need, particularly given some of the ripples of what's happening in, in the Middle East, uh, I think uh, he's got a, an important role to play in bringing communities together. And I see he's already done some of that, which I commend. So, look, um, the First Minister is, 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 is a duty and whatever comes with that duty, I, I do to the best of my ability. My last question. Um, you mentioned without prompting that you're a Celtic fan. <laughs> I do like football too, don't you? I love football. And <laughs> I, I love that uh, clip of you in the stands at Burnley from many years ago, practically headering the ball. <laughs> what was the game again? Was it a, was Liverpool, it a final? We beat Liverpool in the cup. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't realise I was being filmed. That's what they all say. Yeah, no, I, did, I genuinely did not. Um, but, you mentioned your support for Celtic. Mm -hmm. I do know some Scottish politicians uh -huh. who support Rangers. Yeah. Or, and or some, and others who support Rangers. Either. But don't like being that public about it because it can be so divisive. So first of all, tell us a bit about your love for Celtic, but also presumably relating it to Gaza. You don't have a problem with Celtic fans waving Palestinian fags when some of the hierarchy in the club do. So look, this thing about all Scottish politicians have to be like party thistle fans, so that you don't <laughs> you don't confess <laughs> your love for for Rangers or Celtic. Um, uh, you're right, it's a thing, but I think it's it's, it's a bit daft. I mean, uh, look, everybody knows I've been a Celtic fan since I was about six years old. So somehow pretend that I'm no longer a Celtic fan would be would be a bit ridiculous. I think people prefer their politicians to be just human beings. Look, I've 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 at times had to criticise Celtic uh, when I was Justice Secretary, for example. Uh, there was there was there was times where I uh, was had to be critical of the club uh, for example during during covid and so on so there was you know you've got to just kind of remove whatever affiliation you've got with your, your club uh, when you're doing the job in terms of uh, being Celtic fan though I mean my, my late uncle sadly passed away quite young pancreatic cancer but he took me to my first ever Celtic game and just fell in love with the club and I uh, grew up watching the club getting thrashed by Rangers they almost got 10 in a row Celtic stopped them they got 9 in a row so grow, grew up uh, with them just thrashing us year after year after year and George Alberts with that uh, killer left uh, foot but uh, and Andy Gorham continuing to break Celtic hearts for, for, for years and years and then came a kind of golden age for Celtic uh, thereafter and the player that I uh, had in my bedroom wall was, was Henrik Larsson and still to this day I would quite like to meet at some point so Henrik if you're listening to the podcast sure and happen to be in the sure UK or Scotland we, we I would love to meet in terms of, of the kind of waving of flags uh, to me first of all look at it's barely the most important issue in the no, Israel the, Gaza it's been important to the club uh, yes, important to the club, uh, but my, my general impression has been, look, if people want to show solidarity by waving flags, we should let them just wave flags. But it's up to the club what it decides to do. It's an internal matter for the club and the management and the board uh, of the club. It just to me, people waving flags is just of such little importance. Good. Well, listen, I like Celtic because... The, when on my birthday when I was 10 in Lisbon was one of the mm. my main sporting memories as a child and the only time I've ever left to burn the game early was against Celtic in the Anglo-Scottish Cup during what we might define as your hooligan period nah no <laughs> such period I exists. tell you yeah. it was hairy what was the score? Uh, we won overall but the, the, oh, I, really? I honestly did leave you yeah. no, we won we won in the end but oh my god it was wasn't safe. Is that right? Yeah, no, absolutely. No. Yeah, look it up. Burnley Celtic Anglo Scottish Cup. Is that right? I'm going to, I'm going to so, check th that. Thank one you. I this I really appreciate it, and it, you're a um, terrific communicator. And, oh, very and, kind. I, and I hope um, you know genuinely that things turn around. You've had a you've had a tough tough plate handed to you, but I think you've obviously got an amazing future ahead of you. So, oh, and I hope you're right about Keir Starmer. Funny <laughs> <laughs> to hope he's miles ahead of the opinion polls. Uh, no, listen, thanks so much. I really enjoyed it, and uh, look, best wishes to you and, of course, all your listeners. Thank you Thank very you much indeed. indeed. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, Rory, comes to Yusuf. I was really charmed. I think he's an exceptional communicator. I really thought at the beginning, I've very few politicians are quite so warm and open about his mental health, about his family. He's very good at avoiding defensive jargon. I mean, it gets more uncomfortable, obviously, when we get to conversations about the European Union and productivity. And I think that must have been tougher for him. But I, I think he's got a, a real charisma and skill. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I got the, f I, I could be wrong about this, but I got the feeling he, f he wasn't enjoying it. 
I got the feeling he felt we were, we were being quite rough on him. I didn't think we were that rough. So I thought I thought there was a defensiveness there. That, that came in when we started getting into policy and European Union. Yeah, stuff, but yeah. I agree with you about the, the sort of openness and frankness and, and obviously his sort of mental health campaign. I'm very pleased that he's he's out there talking about this stuff. I still feel on the on the kind of political stuff, I'm still not entirely clear what the SNP strategy is for the election. And, and do, do you think if he'd been Alex Salmon or someone, he, he might have been able to handle with a bit more sort of lightness of touch and humour some of the tough questioning and turned it around a bit more? Uh, no, I think he's got it. I agree with you. I think he's got a very good manner on it. But I, I don't think they've yet provided the answers. Now, as it happens, I think if it's the document, he, I think it is. I have read the thing that they wrote about the currency. But I, I still feel that on these really big policy questions related to independence, that they haven't really drilled, so, so done the work, drilled down. You don't think it's so much a manner thing. You, you don't think it's that that no. that, that it, it's the it's the content. I, well, look, they Alex Salmon definitely had the manner. Yeah, Nicholas Sturgeon had yeah, the manner, yeah. as you're saying. Yeah. He's got the manner. Yeah. slightly different, slightly yeah. more understated. But no, I think actually it's, it's about the, the 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 really hard questions related to it. What I also sense, and I don't think Alex Salmond, if he listens, will enjoy that interview, I also sense that he was trying to downplay the importance of independence within the context of his leadership, except when he kept saying, I'd much rather be talking about policy on economy, yeah. jobs, education, yeah. etc. But no, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I thought he was, uh, I'm surprised you've been so positive because I, I kept looking at you. I thought you were being quite grumpy. Obviously, I'm grumpy about, about the idea that independence is going to deliver these wonderful productivity benefits and blah, blah, blah. And I think he's, I had this terrible goosebumps, as you know, when so much what he says, I'm afraid, gives me post-traumatic stress because it reminds me of the kind of promises the Brexit politicians made about mm. how things are going to be easy. But I did think that for a politician, he was an exceptional communicator. I mean, one of the things that's sad about politicians is they can often become very defensive, very overly cautious, very wooden and I really warmed to his frankness about mental health, about his mm. family, about his life growing up. I think he's got a great future ahead of him. I mean, he's very young. Mm -hmm. 39. I, I think if he's resilient and holds to it, he could emerge as a kind of really major statesman over the next 20 mm. years in Britain. It's interesting as well, because, you know, we, you've talked about Anasawa as well. I mean, Scotland does tend to produce pretty high quality political communicators. Yeah. And Anasawa also terrific sense of humor. Well, Rhys Davidson also was a great communicator, mm. great charisma. So... And and I think maybe because it isn't Westminster, because they aren't right up against the full media of the 70 million person country, people can maybe develop a more intimate, informal manner. Yeah, although up there, they get, I mean, the media up there is pretty full on the whole time. Good. Onwards and upwards. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.